So hi everyone and welcome to Architecture in the Den. Um, with me your host Lisa, Lisa Rains uh, from Pride Road, the Architectural Practice Franchise. And today um, I'm delighted that Ewan Miller has joined me. So um, Ewan, um, I've known you for quite a quite a while, maybe 10 years. No, not at all, we're mere spring chickens. <laughs> yes, yeah. so um, Ewan runs a, uh, oh, I was going to say a super practice. Just a normal practice, a super practice in, um, in Altrincham up in sort of in the outskirts of Manchester uh, and we were just talking a couple of minutes ago about what we were going to talk about and we've got quite a few kind of common ground um, there is quite a bit of common ground between us we kind of both okay. served and served on the RIBA we both have the practice work in similar sectors and I'm going to stop there because I usually don't talk that much on a podcast. So I'm going to introduce Ewan and just um, ask you to introduce yourself a bit further. Well, good afternoon, Lisa. Lovely to see you again. Um, and thank you for having me on and good afternoon, everyone. Yes, my name is Ewan Miller. Uh, I am Managing Director of Coldwell Field Architects based in South Manchester, as Lisa rightly points out. We have about 30 staff. Um, we've got offices in Eshirt in Surrey, um, small office in Sheffield, um, Liverpool and Manchester, as well as um, Altrincham, but the majority of the staff are based in Altrincham, where our studio is. And we specialise, if, if that is a word, uh, on the residential sector. Um, I suppose maybe half of our work is what we class as uh, super homes, which really is just a fancy word for expensive houses, usually mm -hmm. replacement dwellings, which isn't really falling into the you know the, the refurb side of the, the market. But we do do an extensive bit of refurbishment work as well and other commercial work, whether that be um, care, uh, assisted living, um, retirement living, and looking at uh, what we class as complex residential. So not your big, we do do some big master plans, but Peculiar sites that require creative solutions, I think, is where we like to pitch ourselves. But we are probably best known, um, as I call it, our Chesney Hawks School of Architecture, our, our, our big one hit for um, the, the typical <laughs> the, the Hale and Hale Barn, Wilmslow, Audley Edge, Knutsford type of villa that um, is quite prevalent in those areas. Mm. Yeah, so I think that's why I kind of said super practice, because <laughs> you, you do super homes. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's quite interesting, the pair of us, because I'm in the residential market as well, but concentrating more on refurb. So I'm at the bottom of the market and you're at the top of the market. And it's just... Oh, they're they're bottom and top, just different ends of the market, aren't they? Well, I think <laughs> they, they both have their challenges. And I think the... The luxury, excuse the word, the luxury we do have at the um, higher end, I suppose, is that um, money, money is not so much of an issue for some of those clients. So therefore we can afford to um, charge what I would class as, not a high fee, an appropriate fee for the project. And I mean, that's something that uh, I've been banging on for many a year about architects valuing what they do and making sure that they charge the correct fee so we can pay people the correct wage so that we won't be as was highlighted by the recent was insider or northwest you know, insider did a survey and uh, architects were the bottom of the pile in terms of income in the property sector 
in the northwest, and uh, that's quite depressing, really. We shouldn't be, but yeah, and it's and, it, and the, the residential sector is a um, ever evolving one, and the, the amount of architects I know that think they can find, you know, fantastic houses uh, and can't. It's quite a difficult, difficult uh, conundrum to solve, and the clients can be very demanding, which is uh, challenging and fun at the same time. But yeah, the, the, <laughs> that's one of the reasons why. Yeah, we kind of look at the the other end of the market. Uh, we've got again, we've got the same values in terms of um, sort of making clients understand our value and making sure mm, that we are absolutely paid. And I think that's definitely common ground between the pair of us. Um, but also, I think it's about sort of uh, make, trimming your service so it's appropriate to your clients. Yes, it's managing their expectations, isn't it? I think, um, and yeah, it's I don't know. It's difficult. It's like anything, isn't it? You always remember the ones that were hard and difficult and didn't pay their fees. Invariably, there are far many more of them that were far easier, enjoyable to work with, and did pay their fees. <laughs> and the super home or the, the luxury end of the market, the residential market. Has always been a. It's all surprised me how consistent it is because even in the depths of recession, there's always someone with money who wants to build a house, or mm. um, you know, uh, whether that be the typical footballer, or um, you know, in recession it tends to be liquidators and people like that who have the money. Uh, <laughs> so it's it's, it's so it's it, you know it's a it's a good sector. We're, we're very proud of it. Um, and constantly evolving, understanding how people want to live in their houses these days, how they want to engage with their houses, the different types of technology and, and uh, spaces that they want to occupy are changing constantly. And uh, it's making sure that we understand how that works and how these houses. So what's your largest, I'm going to be like, <laughs> um, what's the largest budget that you've worked with? Oh, shit. Gosh, that's a good question. Um, I should have done some homework before I came, didn't I? <laughs> the largest budget, fanciest. The largest, the fanciest, most expensive. Yeah. Um, well, we, we, did, we did a house which sadly went to tender, but then uh, has, the, the couple got divorced um, for about 17,000 square feet. Um, I think from memory we were looking at somewhere around about 12 million, but um, I could be wrong. Can't remember exactly what it was, but um, again, that was a very specific house for them. It was based down south, um, and why they needed that much space, Lord only knows. But he collected Banksy art, um, and he was relatively young. He was in his, uh, I think, it was late thirties, early forties, from memory, um, and also DJ. So he had a DJ booth in one of the schemes. Um, so yeah, but we do. It's, it it varies. It really. like a, a famous person, but uh, <laughs> was it no, a famous person? It wasn't, I, mean, I couldn't tell you anyway. He wasn't. No, he wasn't famous at all. He was possibly <laughs> famous in his sector, but not not in, not in the public eye at all. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> not in the public eye. And and you know, some of them. He he was he was very open about it. I'm sure he wouldn't care if we if I was to talk about him personally but I wouldn't anyway but um, some of them are obviously very private individuals so they, they, they require um, us to remain quite quiet on some of, the, some of the houses we've done we can't talk about which is quite frustrating at times but you know goes with the territory really. 
I think um, I think a lot of my clients would certainly be uh, sort of interested in some of the stories that you've got on clients and who your clients would be. Yeah. We're all we're all fascinated. It's that through the keyhole fascination, isn't? isn't well, I think that's the thing that's what's so fascinating about domestic architecture is that everyone lives in a house or a flat. We all we all, we all have lived in a house. We all had experience of it. Not everyone has, we used to do fire stations, for instance. Don't ask me why, that's long lost in the midst of time. But not many people are interested in fire stations, apart from the fact, do they still use a pool? Whereas, um, and they don't, by the way, but <laughs> housing, um, everyone's fascinated by housing. And it might just be even your own house, but they're all fascinated by it. And they won't hear the stories about the, you know, the, um, the 10 pin bowling alley that was put into someone's house or the, um, someone asked for a a, 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 a present wrapping room um, so they could, you know, spend, just have a room dedicated to that. I don't know how many presents they wrapped, but um, I always assumed they'd have staff to do that, but there we are. Um, yeah, and catering kitchens, kitchens um, you know, staff quarters. There are, there are a vast array of things that get thrown into these, um, these properties. Uh, golf simulator rooms, so you can, you can test your golf swing um, and you know we have one client who's just bought a car that is you can't put on the road and I think he's bought it for about two million pounds and he's sent us the size of it so we can design a turntable for his garage for it to go in now my my initial thought when I heard all this was how ridiculous but in essence for someone of that level of income and that level of worth this isn't a car this is to him a work of art and he wants to show it off so it's no different to having a fine sculpture on a revolving platform um <laughs> so you know and, and i think um and places like the, the, the sort of semi-basement or underground or not even underground some of the garage spaces we're doing now um they're absolutely astonishing you know they, they can be converted into um you know party party areas and things like that they're not they're not the rather nasty fluorescent lit um, bright spaces that you would expect. They are quite well designed and considered spaces that really do show off some of these people's, you know, I suppose the things they like to collect um, in some instances. So there's, yeah, there's a vast array of stuff that um, I could bore you to death with. Um, I'm sure you told me once about a fancy dressing room. Oh, we've had loads of them, but we have here, the dressing room with the, with the mirror, because that was the one you're thinking of. Um, <laughs> where they had the mirror that you could stand in front of, um, turn around, wave your hand over a sensor, and the mirror played back. You in a full-length mirror, um, looking, you know, you could see every part of the clothing, which is a great idea. But in reality, you just put a mirror behind you, and it has the same effect. But no, they wanted this very expensive bit of kit, and I think that's part of it. Is that you? You have to. I certainly occasionally have to bite my tongue and think. Yeah. Thank you. And before we came on air, we were talking about our, our parents actually, and yeah. we were talking about because my 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 dad's very poorly, and you know, my dad has worked bloody hard in his life, um, to, and to have some material uh, wealth or purchases, and you know, he, there are things that he had as an asp, you know, he he. he I'm probably going to turn off all of my <laughs> all of my three subscribers, but he always wanted a Bentley. Yeah. 
and you know he sold he's successfully sold his business twice and at the last sale which was about six years ago he bought himself a bentley and was he happy with it when he got it very happy with it and it oh, was no. one of his life's um dreams to do that so, well, I think I, I, it's, it's admirable if you can get to a position where that is. If it's one of his life dreams, it's no more different than saying, "I want to visit, yeah. I don't know, New York or whatever." You know, yeah. it's, it's those things that people strive to do. And um, well, and also, I think when I was younger, I, I I kind of begrudged him doing Austin state ostentatious things like that. But you know, he always thought it was a bit cringy, but actually knowing how hard he really did work, you know, he absolutely sort of deserved to buy a Bentley. So if you know anyone who wants... I think a plum-coloured Bentley. I think there are, um, you know, it, it's... It's difficult to say. I mean, it, people always assume that we do footballers' houses um, because of the area that we work in. I and mean, we do do a few, um, probably more now than we have in the past. But footballers tend to be transient animals. You know, there are few and far between that stay for a very long time in one area. So it's, it's not something that um, we chase that much. But um, I have to say, all the footballers, and I don't follow football, so I don't really know who they are, but all the footballers that I've come across um, or have to deal with, um, have been very uh, sensible, down to earth, intelligent, you know, interesting people. Um, one I did find was drawing his house um, using the side of his iPad as a ruler when I came in for the first meeting. Um, and I, I said to him, Well, you know, I assume you're a footballer because I've seen your a couple of, you know, trophies in your, in your hall. Um, I said, Have you seen me play football? And he said, no, he said, exactly. So that's what I'll do with architecture and you do with football. Um, and he didn't draw one after that, so that's a shame. But um, so, yes, we do get, you know, quite a lot of them. But I think if you are, it, it does, some things do, do you have to sort of bite your tongue a little bit because you think, crikey, you know, there, there's people who, you know, you don't know you're born sometimes with this stuff. But they've all, in their own way, worked hard or, you know, strove to achieve something. Uh, some of them have, you know, very successful businesses they built up from from nowhere, and you've got to admire them. Um, do you um, watch the um, sale value of the properties that you do? I know it's, it's a really important part of our business model. Um, that I I sort of I don't believe in putting clients in negative equity, and for our clients, their home is their primary investment. So yeah. more, I'm always mindful of kind of what they bought the house for, you know, what the uh, current value is, what the ceiling price is, and to make sure that they, you know, they don't make any um, sort of crazy investments or, you know, sort of do something that's not going to add value. Do you, do you is that something that you consider at all? Yeah, it is a consideration, but I think with the, especially if you're looking at round hill barns and the sort of luxury end of South Manchester, if you build a house for a client, it's for that client. The next one that comes along, if it's terribly unsustainable, will invariably demolish that and use the plot and do, do it again themselves. There's very few that actually come along and will either live in the house as it is uh, and not completely demolish it. And even if they don't, they'll you know they'll spend a fortune doing something different to it. 
Um, but yes, we are. We are constantly aware of where the market is in that area. But then it constantly surprises us the fact that the market just continues to go up and up. And you'll have certain individuals buying two plots and knocking them together. And we just think, who on earth is going to want that size plot? But that's what they want. They can afford it. They want to build their house on it. Um, you know, we're not going to say no. But um, it then becomes a very rarefied market. If you think about it, in, in, in that, sec that end of the sector, the amount of people that are available to buy those sort of value properties is not as much as the, um, you know, the range that would say that would be this, this, I suppose, the standard range for domestic properties around Manchester, which I guess would be anything from sort of, I don't know, quarter of a million, which is still a lot of money, up to, let's say, the six, seven hundred thousand pound mark. So therefore, if you have got a house that you bought for £400,000 and you're going to spend £200,000 on it, then you've got to be pretty sure that when you're spending that £200,000, if you know something goes wrong and you have to sell it, that it's still going to deliver you some equity. Um, and but there is also the discussion about um, you know lifetime homes and how we have a lot of younger couples will come to us, you know, and they view their life as it is now. They can't. They might say, "Oh yeah, we'll get a dog," and oh, we might have children later. But they can't view their life when their, you know, their elderly parents have moved in with them, or the fact that they've even got elderly, or, or dogs, even more dogs, without realising it. Um, and um, you yeah. know, so it's, it's how we, what we bring to the table is, is the fact that if they want this, if they believe this house is going to be their house for life, and you know, no one can plan very hard far ahead in terms of life events. But um, if they do, then it's, it's making them understand that you know there may come a point where it, You'll, you'll want to have a lift to take you upstairs to your, your, you know, your bedroom, or you may want to live downstairs in a certain area, and, and how these spaces can be adapted to suit how you want to live and how your, your changing health will affect that. Or, you know, if you have to move, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not too difficult to imagine a, a teenage flat becoming a, a granny annex and things like that. So it's, um, it, these houses need to be able to adapt and move and change. They also, you know, some of them we design with vast spaces where they can have you know, up to I don't know, 20, 30 people in for dinner formally. Um, but then, of course, and that, but then that happens once a year. Um, so you've then got to think, how is that space going to be used for the rest of the time? So it's making sure those spaces are adaptable so that you don't feel if you're sitting down reading the paper on a Sunday morning, it's not too cavernous and, and inhumane. Um, and likewise, when you've got 30 odd people racing around doing stuff, it still feels homely and welcoming. Or there are, as, as, as we frequently plan into these spaces, a sort of retreat, which is a smaller room that's far more comfortable and personal. Um, and so how do, you, um, how do you work out fees for a, a large project? We tend to work it on a square foot basis. So we've looked at what it's cost us in the past. Yeah. And we know that to deliver the service, for instance, we'll charge £4.50 a square foot. So we, we probably, probably, if you go back to old old money, uh, for those that we may remember RIBA fee scales, we're probably looking at about 12% for a, a reasonable size house, which is, you know, when we're looking at the commercial developments where we're charging maybe 4%, um, and six percent is a very good fee in that situation. Then this end, this this side of the market is is. I can't see where it's because, 
we know we know they take time and we know they take a lot of, of effort to do um so but we also have the the added benefit of the fact that we've got a decent reputation in this sector yeah absolutely. so people come to us for the houses and um you know that's we can say we can afford to say to them look you know yes we can do it you're gonna to have to wait three months and it's going to cost you this so um tell me about how you um so you're md of cold appeal yeah um and your name is neither colder nor peel nope. <laughs> no, left a long long time ago yeah uh, who was it was, it was the two, two yeah richard peel who um is a developer um he used to have a company he left to set up a development company called mirror park um which went on to do you know start doing some big work in liverpool um and had uh, we did a large tower with them in central manchester behind piccadilly many years ago um but then the crash happened uh, but he, he yes he left i think it was about a year before i joined i think but he was already formulating that because harry calder and richard peel set it up in Didsbury, um originally um always wanted to get into development so they ran the development but then harry his passion was the architecture which his passion was more focused towards the um development side so they decided to split now i suppose at that point they should have possibly considered renaming it um but they didn't um remain called appeal and um, we've had discussions i think maybe three or four times about changing it and we have changed it because we've taken on other practices in the past so we had um fallows gowan we took them over so we had fgp on the end of our name for a while um yeah we've had, we, and we've had a few practices come in that we've, we've had to call ourselves with someone else um but then it usually fades away and called appeal remains and it got to a point now where I'm getting too old, really. To I mean, I know, I know. Roger, for instance, his practice has been renamed. Um, someone's going to ask me what it is now. I can't remember. But um, the, the guys that are taking over are now part of that practice name, and that's great. But are you talking Stevenson? Yeah, Roger Stevenson. Yeah. Um, they, yeah, they've got such a good brand though. It's difficult to imagine it changing. I don't know why. But at some point, someone will change our name, um, and it might not be in my tenure maybe the next the next generation comes up with decides to change the name and that's fine but probably... so how how long have you been at um when did you start at cold appeal i uh, know i think it was 19 or 20 years ago now lisa good lord yeah ancient no, when been, did you study uh, originally in aberdeen i did my degree up in aberdeen university and then studying at uh, north london for my masters um and then i worked in london for a number of years and, and what brought you up to manchester uh i suppose i would say money but it, was, it wasn't it wasn't money but it was mainly um quality of life mm. we were living in um just outside watford at the tail end of our existence down there um i was commuting into london every day i worked at rmjm and on some days on some days it was a two and a half hour commute each way which was just shocking two small children so we met friends who were living up in the northwest went up to see them one weekend and thought what on earth are we doing down there yeah. um so yeah we moved and didn't didn't really look back so you know the kids then got settled and uh i joined a practice in manchester well was that there's a practice called comprehensive design who were based in edinburgh <laughs> 
They specialised in shopping centres, which is not exactly a, a, an area you're going to be in now. Um, and I think the guys in, in Edinburgh, they, they picked someone to go and run the practice down in Manchester. It was a lovely lad. Um, and then he was joined by a chap called Steve Unwin. So you know, all the listeners may, not have heard, may have heard of him. He was at BDP when they were doing the Olympic bid. Um, very talented man, but they just, they just for some reason couldn't get it off the ground, or not for Sal, I was there. And I noticed Calder Peel were starting to build in Manchester, so I looked him up. Um, and yeah, decided I'd sort of drop him a letter and went, went for an interview, and that was it, really. So yeah, I'm still and here. It's usually part of the podcast that I ask if there's anything that you want to promote at the Anything I want to promote? Oh, yeah. my God. Obviously, I'm here to promote Pride Road. Are <laughs> um, there any questions that you've got? You'd like to send my check later. Um, no, I mean, I think really um, we, we, we do do our own advertising. We, we found, for instance, that our Instagram, that's our, that has now become, I think, one of our biggest marketing tools mm -hmm. in the last few years. Um, and we've got a lot of investment into that. Um, no, I mean, you know, I'll be speaking, obviously your listeners will be predominantly architects, so I, I can't promote my practice because um, <laughs> they're on their own or they're going to work with someone. Um, no, I've got, I've got, I've got, I've got nothing, nothing to sell, Mrs. And just, <laughs> and enjoyment. Um, and, and are you involved in the RIBA at the moment? Well, like yourself, served on National Council, I did two terms because I was a gotten for punishment and uh, just finished a last two, three months ago now um, and uh, stood down. Uh, I don't know if I'll go back up for election again. I'd be surprised. However, I'm still on the uh, Northwest Council um, and I'm still currently, although I've not met, my application hasn't been accepted to be on um, National Membership Committee because I think I'm doing some work on there. Uh, I'm striving to get to a position where chartered members and chartered practices get free CBD um, from the RIBA. And I've been working on that for six years. We're getting close. So I'm keen to try and keep on board there so that membership fee covers all your CPD. And I think it's even more critical now with the core competencies coming up that um, if the RIBA wants to strive to be different to ARB and be a benchmark of quality then I think they need to be offering the members free CPD as part of, of the, the membership package. So that's that's one thing I'm pushing for. Continue so to is do there so. anything that our listeners can do to support that? Um just keep just any anytime that we enter from the RIBA, just nag them about it really, I think, you know, because I mean the great thing is now that oh great thing. COVID's been a, a huge leveler, but very interesting outcome is obviously everyone now knows how to, as we are today, how to operate digitally. So the CPD programme, which again, we were pushing and pushing to get onto um, digital um, platforms. It, there was a huge amount of resistance to that RIBA because of the expense of doing so. Um, and they prefer to do the roadshows. So you'd send them out to Manchester in place, which is fine. But then if you're in Cumbria and you've got to go for a day long CPD session in Manchester. It's, an old, it's a long old haul to do it. So um, thankfully, um, COVID's done more than I ever could to make sure that that gets put online. So now I see no reason why we can't be offering it as a free service to members. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the content of the, um, the roadshow uh, was always high quality and there's some great speakers. And we just 
getting them online and making sure that if you've got a membership that you can access that, I think it'd be, be marvellous. So hopefully, watch this space. But, um, as you well know, the RIBA is a, is a fantastic organisation. I think, despite the fact that everyone upon everyone bones about it in some way, shape or form, including me, um, I think if it didn't exist, we'd probably set up a new RIBA um, to represent architects. But um, it is, you know, it's a large organisation. It is very difficult to turn around ideas because it just takes a long time to cut through the quagmire of not so much red tape, just the various departments to understand who the decision makers are and how you can influence them. Um, but if you're not involved in RIBA, well, you're not really going to be able to influence them. So I think that was my theory. Is rather in and out to some extent. <laughs> I still sit on the MSA Council, although I have to say, bless them. Poor old Rob's the president now. I'm not really doing much, so um, I think I just I think I get invited just because I'm an old face. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, okay, well, thanks very much for coming on. It's been not lovely. at all. It's lovely to speak to you. Lovely to talk to you as as usual. Um, so um, yeah, the dogs have behaved. Yeah, they are. Once I've got two here. I've got one asleep on the sofa and one asleep on my knee. <laughs> two as well thank goodness <laughs> three at home what you've got three three at home yes we've got two sausage dogs at home so, really yeah we've got the cockapoo basil and, and cooper and harvey the sausage dogs so that that can be that can be so you know i understand the complexities of two you try three that's entertaining <laughs> no it's good it's 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 it's, it's great fun to be honest <laughs> wow <laughs> oh dear. We're all gluttons for punishment. Yeah, on that note, I'm gonna say stop and say thank you very much for coming on podcast. Um if you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please follow us, like, subscribe, and share. Um, we're available on YouTube and Spotify and generally most podcast outlets. Um, and if you're interested in finding out more about Pride Road, you can look for prideroadfranchise.co.uk and if you want to come on as a speaker, a contributor, please get in touch. Uh, so Lisa Reigns. Um, right, Ewan, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Probably and wish we'd gone too long, but there we are. And have a great afternoon. And we, we're on a Monday, aren't we? So yes. <laughs> is it Monday? It, is Monday. It, was, it was Monday the last time I looked. I presume it's too late. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye.